Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of The Dairy Edge. Chagas are running a weekly Let's Talk Dairy webinar series, which is also being made available as a podcast. On this week's webinar, Stuart Childs discusses pre-breeding management to maximise six-week calving rates next year. So this week I'm going to talk about a little bit of pre-breeding management to try and improve six-week calving rate. Um, we've talked a nice bit in the last couple of days about the types of bulls and the types of cows we're going to use for breeding. So what cows are we selecting? What bulls are we selecting? And people are probably still working on that. But uh, in spite of all the fantastic benefits of EBI, etc., there is a management element to breeding. And if people don't deliver on that side of it, um, then all the EBI in the world and, and uh, fertility management um, our fertility sub-index isn't going to put cows and calves. So we have to submit cows. We have to submit cows at the right stage. Um, and we also have to deal with cows that have trouble as well. So I'm going to focus on, I suppose, identifying those problem cows today. And um, I'll just go through a sh- short presentation here in relation to this. And uh, OK, so, um, so pre-breeding management, as I said, to increase six-week calving rate is the focus for today. And... Why are we concerned about that? So the target is that we would have um, 90% calved within six weeks. And that is uh, a fair ask, I suppose, in some people's minds. Uh, But there are people achieving it. And then there are other people that would say that they don't want to achieve it because of the uh, effort that that creates, I suppose, or the requirement for effort that that creates in a very uh, short space of time. There are two sides to it, I suppose. There's no denying that there was a lot of work related to calving 60 or 90% in six weeks. Uh, but the other side of it is anyone who does achieve it, it says that it's it's very, it's intense for that period of time, but then very quickly it drops off. Then so the workload is probably, while it's intense for a period, it actually is more manageable in their opinions um, over time. And that's, that's farmer opinion now as opposed to our advisory organization opinion, okay? So the concerns, I suppose, in relation to the six-week calving rate is that there's slippage. Sorry, I'm after jumping forward there. Yeah, so the national six-week calving rate is only 67%. And while that's improving year on year, uh, there's still a good bit of a way to go. Now, we do have a lot of groups, I suppose. Uh, generally, we would see that you're probably somewhere in the region of north to 75% to the 90% uh, in um, the groups that we come across. Uh, but there's probably a, a, a large cohort of people that are probably sitting in that 75 to 80% calving rate. Now, it's still a good calving rate, don't get me wrong, but there is scope for a little bit more. And I suppose just in terms of the national context, what's it worth? So Lawrence Shalou and George Ramsbottom and a few other people were involved in a paper a good number of years ago now where they put a, a quant- quantified the value of this. And they came out with a figure of uh, each 1% being of difference being worth €8.22 per cow in the herd. So just to walk through that, if we have our target at 90%, and from a national point of view, looking at it today, uh, with 67% calved in six weeks in, in 2021, we have 90% minus our 67%, giving us a 23% difference. When we multiply that by A22 and take an average herd of cows in Ireland is roughly around 100 cow mark, there's 18,906 euros uh, going a begging, I suppose, um, in those herds. And that's really being driven by, I suppose, in, there's there's several factors pl- play into it. Might, quite obviously, it's milk production. Um, so calved earlier, longer lactations, um, producing more milk as a result. 
the theory would be that that would be milk that's produced from grass then as well. So it would be obviously more efficient production. And the other element that we, we probably wouldn't think of as much is that there's a lower requirement for a replacement if cows calve early, they have a greater chance of staying in calf or going back in calf and staying in the herd. So there's a lower replacement rate being built or the lower replacement rate by being driven by a higher six week calving rate is also included in it. So there's a number of factors uh, that contribute to that near 19,000 euros of a, of a difference. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an important element of it. Uh, and I suppose moving on to what are the concerns that we have in relation to it, I suppose what I see is that mature cows are slipping within herds. Uh, and that's, um, I suppose it's slightly understandable in that they have high outputs and we, we, we are striving for that. We want these 500 to 550 kg milk solid output cows. Uh, because they put money in the bank for us but we have to be careful that they're getting well looked after in terms of their nutrition and everything uh, but in particular where there's any issues i think uh, we have to maybe look to give them a hand to make sure that they don't slip out of the system too easily the other concern is maybe that synchronizing of heifers potentially can give a false six-week calving rate so okay they're they're only going to be a fifth of the total herd being calved but if they are all calving in the first six weeks then they may put a false bottom on, on our six-week calving rate and that there may be a greater level of slippage, as I said, within the mature herd, uh, but where it's kind of being masked by virtue of the fact that the, the heifers being synchronized means that they're calving within that six-week window. Um, so, the, But the biggest concern would be that we're not achieving that mature herd performance due to the lactation length of those later calvers. Calling of mature animals for infertility where we're very rigid with our breeding season, so we're not going over the 12 weeks, uh, and we're not, uh, so what's empty is empty. And if those cows uh, are empty, they're going out of the system in most cases. Um, the loss of the genetic gain that can be associated with them. Now you'll say that that's counterintuitive and that I'm saying that um, these are high genetic merit animals. Why are they slipping out of the system? But the, as I said, there is a management element to it. So grass nutrition, uh, just how much meal are they on? If they're short of feeding, are they getting enough feed to keep them, make sure that they're on a rising plane of nutrition? Bearing in mind that they are producing quite a lot of milk at the time that you're asking them to go in calf as well. So they, they do need to be well fed. So there, there is potential for loss of genetic gain in that sense. Then the next question is, do we have a higher replacement rate as a result of the loss of these animals? And I suppose an even a further um, concern then is not being able to replace the animals that you want to replace within the herd. So cows, invariably cows that you don't want will be the ones that can often go in calf. Uh, and then if we don't have the option to call them out because we've lost a higher proportion than we planned of the, the good cows, um, we end up carrying those cows around again. So we have these poor performers carrying on. So just a question in there now, when does your calving date really start? Is it the one that decides to calve two weeks ahead of everyone else or your actual book date? And that's something that we come across on a very regular basis. And the reality of it is, uh, we were at a group, I was at a group the other day and um, the local advisor had run the report for the farmer and it was giving him a very good six week calving rate at the, at the time because not all the cows are calved. So if we run a 2022 report, we're getting a false figure in terms of what the six week calving rate is. But we do get an indication of what cows calved in the six weeks and we can work that off in terms of the, the actual total number of cows to calve. So we can figure out where we are for this year in the short term until ICBF run the report. But when ICBF do run the report, to answer the question that has been asked, 
The six-week calving rate will be dictated by the actual the start date of calving that you're expected to start calving on, not by, like generally speaking, probably not as bad this year, but generally speaking, we're probably seeing 10% of the herd calving in advance of the actual calving start date. Now, um, that's my feeling of what I've seen this year across the country so far. Uh, some people have had more. I've, I've encountered a couple of people in the last number of weeks where they've had 15, even to 20% calved before their start date. Um, and and that's that's factored in now. It wasn't in a couple of years ago. It wasn't counting those cows. It was actually taking the first cow, cow calved as your start date. And that would give a bit of a, a false uh, light for people. But it's now being based at the, the report that will be run there probably in September, August, September, October for the calving for 2022 will be based on the start date of calving, the actual start, the date that you were supposed to start. So if you're supposed to start on the 1st of February, that will be the start date. And the cows that were calved before that will actually be included into the calculation in terms of calculating your six-week calving rate. Now, the positive, I suppose, about that is that an hour or 90% six-week calving rate could actually potentially, you could argue, be spread over seven weeks because we may have started calving a little bit beforehand, but we still achieved the 90%. And from a workload point of view that often people challenge us on in relation to that 90%, it may just spread it ever so slightly uh, over another week, obviously, and, and take the, the heat out of it a small bit. But that's it's very minor in, in the overall scheme of things. So just... My slides are slow to move today for some reason. Okay, so the post-calving issues that we have to be concerned about in terms of the pre-breeding management, and I would have shown you this back at the start of, of February, probably in relation to recording the data and how it's important for this point in time now of the year. So the milk fevers, which we can often get at the start of, of, of calving season because we're maybe not on minerals long enough, etc., or ketosis for whatever reason, retain percent of which can occur in a percentage of cows and will always occur in a percentage of cows. Uh, cows that might actually calve clean, but for whatever reason have got bacteria or maybe something left behind in the uterus following calving that can get a metritis or a pyometra, which is just a, a lot of dirty discharge. They obviously will have sub-optimal uh, sub, um, fertility. Funnily enough, I suppose it wouldn't be something that people would think about dramatically, but mastitis is a challenge on the immune system of an animal and where a cow has had mastitis they uh, potentially may have suboptimal fertility as well and obviously lameness then just driven by intakes really more so than anything else so lameness could uh, induce low uh, dry matter intakes because cows may be not getting to the paddock in time or if they're uh, lame inside in the shed they may not be getting up to compete uh, with cows and they may just may not have sufficient access to feed so treating lameness early on is important. And if cows have, are in poor body condition, I suppose lameness in itself may not necessarily compromise the fertility if it's been corrected. But if the lameness uh, has resulted in significant loss of body condition, then uh, that animal is obviously going to have poor fertility. And look, there's you're, you're going to have to look at once a day in that scenario, I would say, because treating the cows isn't going to necessarily improve the, the fertility side of it. Grass technique, which I haven't heard a lot of. I heard, uh, again, now just re in the last couple of days, cows, a couple of cows that had got it, but there hasn't been a lot of grass technique that I've heard about this year. Um, but if they, that's, of course, if they survive, because uh, they have to be caught early, um, they, that they're also affected in terms of their fertility. So there's a list of cows that you, if you've identified, if you were tuning in back in February and have those cows identified, you have a list straight away that you're going to be targeting. 
Uh, and then there's other ones maybe coming along that for whatever reason you think that they're a little bit off or maybe as I said in body conditions or that they're, they're after slipping. So is there something underlying there that, that's affecting them? Mineral nutrition, so then, so I'm moving on to what we can do to correct this. Uh, and I suppose mineral nutrition is a bit of a, uh, a maze in, in terms of the interactions. I should have actually included the, the mineral interaction sphere that we that you might often see there. And, and we have to be very careful with minerals because there, there are recommendations there in terms of what inclusion rates are required for the various minerals. And they generally are in the, they're going to be at the standard levels in feeds that you have, but different areas have different issues. So molybdenum is a common problem in, in the area that I'm from. Uh, selenium can be a problem in, in another area near Moore Park as well. Uh, so we'll say individual areas can have individual problems iodine was a problem that we came across last year and obviously the big one then that seems to be cropping up more and more uh, and there seems to be a real push on it or an increase in demand for phosphorus in the last couple of weeks according to some suppliers I've spoken to uh, in that there's a, a bigger demand in relation to phosphorus deficiency or concerns around phosphorus deficiency so um, that's a macro mineral people would often forget about that and it can actually be the one that could trip people up so it's important that people know what the issues are. So there's a lot of people go down the route of maybe injecting minerals, um, bolusing with minerals, feeding minerals that they may not need to do at all. Uh, so it's very important. And I spoke to Stephen Butler about this earlier in the week because he'd be, he's done a lot of work in this area. And he's very adamant that people really should try to identify the problem uh, in advance rather than loading in the minerals first. Okay. So blood sampling at least 10 cows to establish their position was what he was recommending. You also need to look at what's been consumed. So your grass, your concentrate. Milk isn't a fantastic uh, um, material for testing for mineral status, according to Stephen, with the exception of iodine. It gives a good indication in relation to iodine. Um, so you could, you can test milk as well. I suppose the initial reason I contacted Stephen on Monday was to see about the use of milk, maybe just to do that scan, would it be of any major benefit in terms of identifying any potential deficiencies on farm? Uh, so he ruled that out quite quickly, I suppose, in terms of he, blood is, is the better, um, better material to use for to try to identify. But it's important then that we know what's going in as well. So um, the grass and the concentrate has to be checked as well. And it's important to get a full mineral scan done on all of those then and including inorganic P, thyroxine and GPX selenium analysis for the bloods as well. So he, he was just making the point that the general mineral scan that some vets may send for may not cover all of these. So you may have to specify or just have a discussion with your vet as to what they're actually going to test for to make sure that you get a, a full rundown on what's, what, um, what you're submitting. So that's the, I suppose that's the mineral side of things. As I said, it's important that people know their position rather than uh, diving in with stuff because you can actually create toxicity issues as well with minerals. So we have to be careful that we don't create a problem by trying to solve a problem. And in some cases we have seen where people have gone in to treat trace element deficiencies that they didn't have and they missed the, the main criteria, which was maybe a macro mineral, uh, phosphorus being the main one that would be a problem there. Um, they missed out on the phosphorus because they assumed that it was a trace element issue that they were dealing with. So then the, oh, that's after coming in a second time, that shouldn't be there. So basically um, what we'd be recommending, and I suppose I've had conversations with some of the, the Munster bovine people who'll be dealing with us down here. Um, and 
many times people get vets into the yard and they scan these cows that have the problems and they're showing cyclicity and they're uh, maybe on the points of maybe showing or showing heat under the according to what the, the scanner is seeing or the vet is seeing on the scanning on this and they may often suggest like the cheaper course of action is give a shot at PG because she's going to come in in the next few days, leave her alone because she's going to come in in the next few days. Obviously, they'll treat the few cows that maybe need uh, metric cures or whatever, and then they will often recommend that you do need to do a cedar protocol on some of these cows as well. Uh, in On reflection about it, and as I said, in discussions with Dennis Howard in particular and Martin Kevin as well in Munster Bovine, in reality, we're talking, okay, 35 to 40 euro for this uh, time DI program that is up on the screen here. Uh, but in reality, you're probably better off to actually go down that route across the board with those problem crows. If it's 10 cows, it's going to cost you, we'll say, 400 euro. If it's uh, 20 cows, it's going to cost you 800 euro. It's a lot of money. But in terms of the actual return on investment, and I'll show it to you in a minute, I think it probably will pay uh, to, to do it. It will definitely pay to do it, sorry. The advantage of the time DI protocol is that it will promote cyclicity in cows that are not yet cycling. Uh, the other advantage is that you're actually making sure that those cows get submitted. So in a lot of cases, or on a lot of farms every year, there are cows that are checked by, by vets. The, the vets reckon that they're coming. This is, that's, they're not necessarily wrong here. Um, but they, it may it's a possibility then that there may be a silent heat that uh, may transpire as opposed to an actual act, active easily observed heat so that so we have a slippage again then in relation to that animal doing this program here means that vet is in the air today scans the animals put the cedar protocol in pro in place in all of those and in 10 days time every one of those animals that was checked uh on assuming that they're clean etc and haven't needed uh treatment for uterine infections or whatever are submitted and served in 10 days Whereas when we go down the routes of the cheaper, give them the shot, uh, let them come naturally, uh, we may not always submit all those animals. They may, as I said, come with a silent heat that we don't observe, and that slippage increases, okay? So we've I've, we've looked at this with Stephen Ward a couple of weeks ago in relation to the sex semen, just to highlight here that in relation to the promoting of cyclicity, we're talking about late calvers, maybe problem cows. Problem cows may, will be okay because generally speaking, they may have calved earlier in the season and they'll be uh, well on in terms of days and milk. However, those problem cows, those late calvers, those cows that are calving now, um, at the moment, they're not necessarily problems in terms of fertility, but they may have issues in terms of just the time is against them for conception. There's the other option that you could use for those ones is maybe to put them on a once a day program. We'll say, so just milk them once a day, continue to feed them twice a day, and they will can potentially come in naturally, assuming that they're uh, clean and, and healthy, okay? So that's the program there. Um, and that, and that's, as I said, is possibly something that people should consider in terms of making trying to make sure that those problem cows or those later calvers, if you're using that pro the program on them, uh, are actually submitted and that there isn't slippage. So just to summarize it, I suppose, I, I actually forgot to mention it earlier, even though it's on the slide, tail paint from now on. Uh, so tail paint everything in the next couple of days and start to observe the heats. Don't spend a lot of time, just watch the cows. The tail paint will just identify cows that have been bowling. It's important that, that, that you do that. Uh, I suppose clipping the hair is probably, or is to be recommended. So clipping the hair on the, on the tails, 
uh, in advance of applying the tail paint to avoid this layering that can occur during breeding season and make it actually difficult to interpret tail paint. Uh, note the heats, as I said, don't put a lot of effort into watching for them, just identify that that cows in heat or and what we were really trying to do is that in three weeks time, we will have a cohort of animals that we will know that have not shown in the last three weeks. And they are candidates that may need to get checked out. And it's important that these are in uh, checked out very early on. So depending on where you are in the country, you may be able to get this done before you start breeding, or you may be just getting it done in the first week of breeding as well. In the past, we've probably been inclined to say, we'll give them a chance, we'll let them come naturally. And then they don't come in the first three weeks, we may be tempted to leave them run on again, then to see will they come again themselves. And we're very late getting involved then in terms of, uh, of intervening. Uh, so we're going to identify the problem cows by doing our pre-breeding uh, tail paint. Now, uh, before we actually start mating start date, which is what that MSD stands for there. Uh, and that will uh, allow us to treat them to ensure the submission and the service. So I have a question mark there in relation to the four uh, to one return on investment. How I came up with that is basically if we say if we have 100 cows and we get one extra cow in calf, that's a 1% increase. If we say €8.22 for every 1% increase, we're saying that that cow is basically generate over 21 days. If they calve 21 days earlier, is generating €173. Euro. And if the cost of the program, I rounded it up to €40. Euro. Uh, we're getting over four to one return on investment in that scenario. Okay. So the value of the metric cure is one is a question that has come in there. Um, I suppose it just all depends on the level of infection that's there. Uh, so metric cure will work, um, but if there's a very significant infection, you may need to use two. Um, and often it can be recommended that you would in, uh, include the metric cure post AI. So look, take advice. I'm not a vet. Uh, you'll have to take advice in relation to that from your, your veterinary surgeon or your, your breeding um, people that are doing the breeding work with you. And the, the but, but Metricure, at the, I would say at this stage, Metricure is the only option in terms of trying to treat uterine infections for people at this stage, okay? So that's pretty much it for today. Um, uh, as I said, just go about the kind of doing very minimal invasion kind of uh, pre-breeding checks or just do the tail painting. People that have collars, et cetera, will have in that information feeding back to them and will be able to identify those non-cyclers as well from that. Uh, submit them early. So get your vet out before you start breeding. Consider going on the full program, I would say. As I said, it's uh, it's a costly program, but people um, people should... Uh, considered using it because I do think it will return. So basically, you're ensuring that you're getting the submission um, by doing it. You're ensuring that the cow is served. It's not a guarantee that they're going to go and calf, but you are kick-starting the system. And I just flick back here because I thought I had a slide that just to highlight it. I must have lost it somewhere along the way. I did, yeah. So basically, I suppose what I was uh, what I was trying to do with one slide that hasn't come through there is um, advocate that if you have this done before you start breeding season and you have a 12-week breeding season, you have four opportunities that a cow can go on calf. If we wait for the first three weeks to pass, we're now down to a nine-week breeding season. We've only potentially three, maybe not even three opportunities if we wait for six weeks, we may only have one because our program has to be implemented uh, and serve the cow. And obviously, if we wait till the very end of the breeding season, the chances of that cow conceiving uh, and staying in the herd are dramatically reduced. So take a proactive approach to your breeding management. 
uh, get those problem cows sorted out. Their problems for nothing to do with their genetics in a lot of cases. It's just like circumstances. So mineral nutrition will say for for one reason or another has resulted in retained placenta or caused them to get the milk fever, etc. So there are cows that just have had suppressed immunity um, aren't actually just functioning 100% maybe and just need a little help in hand. And it'll be money well spent in terms of retaining those cows for the mature yields that they can generate, reducing replacement numbers required to be brought into the herd, which may either free up heifers to be sold potentially or free up heifers to be brought into the herd to replace cows that are actual genuine poor performers or, or bad cows. So we'll leave it at that for today and we'll be back again next week and we'll talk to you then. And in the meantime, happy and safe farming. Okay, thank you. That's all for this week's Let's Talk Dairy webinar series. And don't forget to look out for more bonus episodes each week. I'll be back with our usual Dairy Edge interview on Monday, so do listen in then. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey and thanks for listening.